do. All right, we're going to have, we're going to look at our Bibles now, so grab those if you brought one of those with you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3 this morning. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one near you, uh, either in the pew right in front of you, behind you, underneath your seat. Um, go ahead and grab that. We want you to know that um, we're not, we're plagiarists around here, right? We're not presenting any new ideas. Everything we have comes from the Word of God, and we're proud of it. Um, so we want you to see that what we teach is from it. We're going to be in Acts chapter 3. As you're turning there, just join me in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for uh, everybody who's here today. Lord, thank you for this opportunity we've had to worship you and um, how our praise team led us uh, just superbly through that, God. We want to exalt you now. Uh, we want to just open your word, Lord, and just have you speak to us. God, where we're in bondage this morning, where we have chains, where we have struggles and trials, may we see through this story in Acts 3. Uh, just the supremacy of Jesus. God, that he's the one who can save us. He's the one who can redeem us and forgive us. And that we have no hope outside of him. Lord, may your word point us to your son. And may we experience your power. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are certain defining moments in everyone's life when something occurs. And you don't, maybe you don't yet know the full ramifications of it. But you know one thing for certain. That nothing's ever going to be the same again. Right, these can be for good and full of joy. They can be the opposite. But they make an impact. Whether it's a phone call or conversation, a test result, a change at work, an opportunity. And you, you know instantaneously nothing's ever going to be the same. And I'm not sure that, that many people, if any, have ever experienced more of these types of moments than those original disciples that Jesus called to follow him and share life with him. Right, the moment that they met him, the first time they heard him teach, the first display of his miraculous power that they saw, uh, his arrest, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the gift of his spirit falling upon him. It seemed moment after moment after moment where, where nothing was going to be the same again. And it's like they, they barely have time to catch their breath before everything changes again. And here's why. It's because Jesus came to change everything. Jesus didn't come to leave the status quo in place. He didn't come because humanity was doing such a good job that he just wanted to come down and give us a pat on the back. No, he came to change everything. And that's what he did. Jesus came to a very religious culture and time and a culture that believed that what God wanted from us was to follow a list of commands and rules. A culture that believed that if they just observed the law, then God would be pleased with them. But over time, the deficiencies of this kind of thinking began to make itself known. That some people began to be elevated over others and given more value than others. People began to, uh, to do things to be seen and to be uh, uh, praised by men rather than actual genuine worship. Leaders began to use the religious law to build themselves up, to make themselves rich and powerful and oppress those beneath them. Those that they were supposed to serve in love. And it was into that culture, right, that Jesus began to say things that no one had heard in a long time if ever. Jesus began to talk about how why you do things actually matters more than what you do. He dismissed outer observances of rules and laws as, as worthless standing on their own. He challenged the religious leaders and their abuse of God's law to oppress people and make themselves look good. And he would say things like, observe the law, yes, but what God wants most is your heart. Not this outer veneer of obedience. What God wants is obedience that flows joyfully from a heart that belongs to him. And his attack, his attack on the status quo was not popular. Right? Though he tells us he gave up his life and he could have stopped at any time, there were plenty who were overjoyed and even orchestrated his death on the cross. Because they didn't want things to change. What they didn't realize is he was, they were playing right into his plan. 
Because nothing would change things more than the cross of Jesus Christ. And Luke writes two volumes, one called Luke, the other called Acts. And the purpose of these books is to tell us the story of Jesus and all he changed. And in, in Luke, we discover the story of the birth, life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in Acts, we're gonna, we see his church carry on his mission and multiplying and being his witnesses. And we're going through Acts together as a church this fall. And, and as we do, we're going to get a front row seat to watch this church, this first church, transition from religion to faith. Right, this, this move from religion to faith, it's a, it's a clouded and, and honestly sometimes awkward transition. But overwhelmingly, it's, it's awesome and powerful because it changed everything and has ramifications all the way to us today. Because this very first church, this first group of believers, all they've ever known their entire lives is religion. And Jesus did not come to establish a religion. And so we see in Acts as they find their way through that. And we're going to see as God will make things clear to them, even remove things for them. But at the start, we'll find that really early on, most of their ministry occurred right in Jerusalem and even at the temple. And today in Acts 3, we get to see the turning point in that history. Because we'll find one miraculous event that will declare for all eternity the supremacy of Jesus over religion. One event that will clearly display for us the differences in what religion is and what faith in Jesus is. One event that shows for all time which of the two actually contains power. Okay, so let's look at Acts chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Acts 3 verse 1 says this. Peter and John went to the temple one afternoon to take part in the 3 o'clock prayer service. And as they approached the temple, a man lame from birth was being carried in. Each day he was put beside the temple gate, the one called the beautiful gate, so he could beg from the people going into the temple. Right, so Peter and John, two of Jesus' original disciples and two of the founders of the church, are going to the temple for a prayer service at 3 in the afternoon. This is part of that awkward transition I'm talking about. Because at this point, there's still no separation in their minds between Jesus and the temple because Jesus is Lord. Right, he is the God that they worshipped in the temple all those years. And, but due to uh, what we will find in Acts, increased resistance from Jewish leaders and due to the temple being unnecessary after all that Jesus has accomplished, God will eventually lead his church away from the temple. But for now, they're still in Jerusalem. It's still super early in the life of the church, and so Peter and John are still going to the temple and worship, and that's fine, because as long as their hearts are in the right place and they're worshiping God, they can worship anywhere. And so they're walking up to the temple, and a man is being carried in, and we're told a couple things about this man by Luke. And the first is that this man has been lame from birth. All right, so whatever condition led to him being unable to walk, he has dealt with this his whole life. All right, so just Think of that for him. Put yourself in his shoes. Not one time, not one single time in his life has he ever walked. He's never ran. He's never danced. He's never jumped. He's never once been able to take care of himself because he's immovable. And he can't care for himself. He can't get a job in this state. So every day, every single day of his life, this is what he did. He would be carried in by friends of his. They would lay him beside the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg for money from the people going in. That was his life. And in order to understand the fullness of the scene that Luke is setting for us here, there's a few things that we need to be brought up to speed on. And the first is just the design and the construction of the temple. And the temple was marvelous. It was a beautiful structure and it was made of a, a series of, it started in the center and then moved out in a series of courtyards and gates based on who you were determined which gates you could go through. Were you Jewish or were you foreign? Were you a man or were you a woman? Were you healthy or did you have some sort of physical deformity? And there was a list of requirements that if 
that eventually, if you were not a pure-blooded Jewish male, at some point there would be a gate that you could not go through. At some point you would be told, you can get this close to God, but you can go no closer. Because at the very center of the temple, inside all of the gates and courtyards, was the Holy of Holies. This was where, in the Old Testament, the presence of the Lord was. And no one other than the high priest was ever able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And the high priest could actually only enter one time a year. And when he did so, he was to offer atonement sacrifices for the sins of the people. And this was because the immense power and holiness of God makes his presence lethal to sinners. In fact, the high priest, just to go into the Holy of Holies, would have to go through a ceremony of purification, asking God to forgive all of his own sins and impurities before he could go in to ask for atonement of other people's sins. And only that forgiveness would allow him to go in. In fact, they would tie a rope around the high priest just in case he hadn't fervently sought forgiveness from the Lord enough and therefore died in the Holy of Holies that they could pull him out without going in themselves. From this center area, the Holy of Holies, the temple expanded out in different courtyards and gates. And this crippled man was brought by his friends or family to the beautiful gate. And this was strategic for a number of reasons. At first, it was just simple. He couldn't go any farther. Right? Because as one with a physical deformity, he was disallowed entry into the inner courts. And secondly, this was a pretty good place to be a beggar at. Of all the gates at the temple, this was the most exquisite. The historian Josephus writes and tells us that every single gate at the temple would have been overlaid with silver and gold, but this gate stood out above the rest. This gate far exceeded the rest in its value and its beauty. It was made of Corinthian gold, and when they built it, they had loaded this gold with both silver and gold alloys, that what happened was when the sun was up, it gave it luster and made it shine brighter than all of the other gates. And inside that gold and silver archway were these, were these beautiful arches with elaborate designs on the ceilings. And this was the most beautiful entrance to the temple. And so naturally, this was the gate to be seen at. Anyone could use this gate, but those who were powerful or wealthy or wanted to be seen would actually go out of their way to, to enter in through this gate. And so this guy had some pretty good friends. Because as far as begging goes, this was a prime spot. Almost all the wealthiest people would pass by him on the way to the temple. Now, another pitfall of religion is that you always end up doing things for you. I mean, think about it. If the entire system is based on you doing things to check off a list in order to please God, then that will, by its nature, flood human nature with pride. So what always happens is that we begin to do things to be seen and praised by others. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, when you give to the needy, do it in secret. So don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Because if you do it to be seen by others, that's the only reward you're going to get. And Jesus said that to that culture in that day because he was speaking to a culture that was full of people who were doing the right things for all the wrong reasons. And so this beggar was laid down at the beautiful gate because that was the place to be seen. These people would not throw him a couple coins in an alley where no one could see them. And no one would notice, right? But the most beautiful entrance at the temple, surrounded by the most important people in the city, well, that's a prime opportunity to show how spiritual and good I am. But despite all that, I want us to see a picture of all that this accomplished. Look at verse 3 in Acts chapter 3. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for some money. And Peter and John looked at him intently, and Peter said, look at us. And the lame man looked at them eagerly, expecting some money. Let me ask you a question. Why is verse 4 necessary? 
Why did Luke write that Peter and John looked straight at this man, looked at him intently, and had to say to them, look up at us, look at us? Why? Because it wasn't normal. Because it was unlike any interaction that man would have with people entering the temple. Because this beggar wasn't even looking at them. We're told in verse 3, he saw them coming and he asked them for money, but he he didn't see who they were. He didn't see what they were about. He, He wasn't looking at them and you cannot blame him. Because think of his life, day after day after day after day, he is told he is worthless. I mean, yes, he may have been at the best spot in all of Jerusalem to beg, but is that what anyone would want? Congratulations, you're the best beggar in town. No, nobody wants that. Day after day, countless people pass him going into a place that he's never been allowed to go. A place he's never seen. Day after day, he's dropped by this gate because he's told he's not worthy to go beyond it. In fact, the religious beliefs of the day would be that he was crippled because of some some sin that either he or his parents committed. So it was seen as if God was punishing him with this illness. And so there's not a lot of mercy that comes your way in that environment. And day after day, the only provision he receives are a few coins given by people who don't really care about him. They just want their acts of righteousness to be seen by others. And what you see in this man's life story is the end result of religion. There's a lot of effort going on. There's a lot of commitment. He's he's there every day, Luke tells us. Every single day. Someone carries him to that spot every single day. Someone, at least a few people, every single day. Give him money because he hasn't starved to death. This has been thought out and planned as he is brought daily to the most strategic spot in the city to ask for money. But despite all the planning and all the effort and all the time and all the days and all the coins thrown his way, he remains crippled. He remains being told he is unworthy. He has been separated from the presence of God. He has been shown no real mercy and he feels devalued and unloved. And he doesn't even bother to look at the people he asks for money anymore. Because if you never saw genuine care, if you never saw real sympathy, if you never saw love in the eyes of another, you would stop looking up too. Every religion is full of effort. It's full of things to do, things to be seen, full of activity and planning. And the end result of all of it is nothing but pain and despair and emptiness. This is why religion always leads to fanaticism. Why have so many people been killed in the name of religion in our history? Why have so many atrocities been committed in the name of religion? Why have so many people done so many terrible things to others in the name of religion? Because it doesn't matter what the religion is. It can be a false veneer of Christianity or any other religion out there. If the focus is on effort and rituals and observance, it always leaves someone feeling empty and desperate. And so they buy into the notion that getting more fanatical and doing even more extreme things will finally fulfill that void in their hearts. And they're simply doubling down on the original mistake of believing that they can fulfill the void in their lives by their own efforts. They can't. So it leads to fanaticism. This prime spot at the most beautiful entrance of the religious epicenter of the world and the end result is a beggar too defeated to even look someone in the eye that's the big payoff and Luke tells us that Peter and John look intently at him they look straight at him hundreds of people pass by this man every day without ever looking down listen compassion cannot help but grow inside of you when you actually look at somebody 
We are so good at driving through neighborhoods and never really looking, aren't we? We're so skilled at walking by people in need without ever stopping to absorb what we see. Because if we did, if we actually looked into their eyes, we'd be compelled to do something about it. And so we just walk by. And day after day after day, no one ever looked at this man. But Peter and John stop and they fix their gaze on him. And Peter says, look at us. Look at us, man. We're looking at you. You have value, you have worth, you are worthy of my time and attention and focus. And this man gets excited, Luke tells us, because he thinks he's getting money. And isn't that also just like us? What he thinks the big payoff will be is a few coins. God has so much more in store than that. Man, we ask for so little and expect so little of God sometimes. For instance, we'll pray and ask him to give us a good day. Right? There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I do believe sometimes God's sitting there saying, I'm the greatest power in the universe and you want me to give you an easy day? Is that it? I'm not talking about that prosperity gospel junk. I'm talking about how God points out in his word that he is at work all the time. And that he invites us into that work. And so when you experience the power of God working through you, there's nothing better than that. And yet we ask for and settle for so much less than that. James 4 says, you have not because you ask not. Ephesians chapter 3 says that God can do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine. He's inviting us to call on him to move in mighty and awesome ways in our lives. He's inviting us to call on him to, to help us to multiply out from us what he's given to us. He has the power to heal relationships and to save marriages uh, to heal physically, to draw people to himself, to bring salvation, and many more things, and we ask for so much less. God has some crazy plans for this man, and he just wants a few coins. Look what happens in verse 6. Acts 3, verse 6, Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold for you, but I'll give you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. Then Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. Then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. Peter looks at this man and he says, I don't have any silver or gold for you. And I want you to understand what all he's saying there. Peter's not telling this man only that I don't have any money for you. Gold and silver were not the only currency of the day. In fact, they weren't the main one. So what is Peter saying? He's saying, look around you. Just look around. This temple and all its beauty and all the gold and the silver all over the gates, the archway with the exquisite design, all of that built on the backs of religion, I don't have any of that for you. I have none of that to offer you. Uh, a few coins to buy you a meal and make me look good, a, an act of supposed righteousness that's designed more for me than you, I don't have that for you. That's not what I have for you. In fact, sir, if you're looking for the status quo, if you're looking for what you've always received, if you're asking for what religion has done for you, then I don't have any of that to give you. But I can give you what I do have. And that's Jesus. So in the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, get up and walk. And Peter reaches out his right hand, the hand of honor in Jewish culture. And he pulls the man to his feet. And in that moment, his feet and ankles are brought to life. They're strengthened. And for the first time in his life, they work. And get this, this man doesn't go for a casual stroll after that. You wouldn't either. For the first time in his life, his legs work, and he begins running and leaping and praising God. And where does he go? Right into the temple, right into the place he's been told his entire life he can't go. 
the place that for years he's watched people go in, but he's been barred from the place that he's told he is unworthy of, and he runs in there leaping and dancing and praising the God who set him free. And hear me, we can't, we can't miss how big a deal this is. The ramifications of this moment go far beyond this crippled man who's no longer crippled. As awesome as his story is, right, it barely scratches the surface of the significance of this moment. Because the significance of this moment displays for us clearly the difference between Jesus and religion. One left a man broke and begging an outcast who had never tasted mercy. And the other, in the name of Jesus, he is healed and freed and redeemed. And it all hinges on the cross. I told you again and again, the Acts is the second part of Luke's two-part book, Luke and Acts. And Luke has prepared his readers for Acts chapter 3 from the very beginning. It would not have been lost on them. Because there were two moments in the Gospel of Luke that foreshadowed and made this story possible. And the first is in Luke 21. In Luke 21, Jesus and his disciples are walking through this very temple. And his disciples are amazed at what they're seeing. All the silver and gold, all the beauty, all the designs on the ceilings and decorations. And they point them out to Jesus. Jesus, look at all this. And he has a very interesting response to them. He said, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And Jesus was completely unimpressed with the temple. On top of that, he told them that it is temporary and its doom was coming soon. And because he was going to make the temple obsolete, which is the second scene we find in Luke, in Luke 23. I'm going to read it for you. This is the account of Jesus' death in the, on the cross in Luke. See if you hear a really crucial detail. Luke 23, verse 44. By the time it was about noon, darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. As Jesus gave his life on the cross, some intense things were happening. Even though it was in the middle of the afternoon, a thick darkness fell on the earth, and the sun was seen no more. And then Luke tells us that in the, the, the curtain of the sanctuary of the temple was torn right down the middle. This was the curtain that sealed off the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And this isn't a curtain that would be on your window. Okay? This was a veil that, that blocked off the Holy of Holies. It was 60 feet high, it was 30 feet wide, and it was 4 inches thick. No human would ever be able to tear it. But the moment that Jesus dies on the cross, it was torn from the top, very top, 60 feet up, right down the middle, all the way to the bottom, meaning that God himself tore the veil, sealing off his holy of holies when Jesus died, which means that Jesus' death, God's presence was no longer contained to a room. Since Jesus suffered and paid the price for sin, now God's presence would, would explode all over the earth. Now his Holy Spirit could dwell inside those who give their lives to Christ. Now it doesn't matter. Listen, it doesn't matter that a crippled man can't go in the temple because God came to him outside of it. God came to him at the gate and healed him. God came and declared him worthy. God came and showed him mercy and grace right where he was because that is what Jesus made possible on the cross. That is how his church is to multiply. That is how we are to be his witnesses, to go where they are. To go wherever there is bondage, to go wherever there is hurting, to go wherever there is emptiness, to go where people are separated from God, to go where they feel cast off and ignored, and to take the presence of God right into their midst because that's what Jesus made possible. And we are to go to them and offer not ourselves, definitely not a religion, we are to go and offer them Jesus Christ. 
In Colossians 2, Paul is writing to a church, right, who's had false teachers come to their church. And what has happened is these false teachers have come to the church of Coloss, and they've tried to convince them that faith in Jesus is not enough, that they need to set up a religion. So that in addition to their faith in Christ, there's now this list of pious rules that they must follow. And here's what Paul writes to them in Colossians 2. He says, these rules may seem wise... Because they require self-devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. But they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. And therein lies the issue. You see, for all the activity, and all the effort, and all the work, and all the rules, religion cannot change a heart. It cannot set you free. It cannot save your soul. It cannot change anything that's not external. But Jesus said these things. Jesus said, anyone who, is a sin, anyone who sins is a slave of sin. But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus said, I came that my followers may have life and have it to the fullest. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but, my, my, but my me. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Do not for a second believe that Jesus came to establish a religion. He came to set people free from religion. He came to set people free from sin and anything else that bound them. On September 11th, 2012, I was in Berlin, Germany with a group of young adults from our church. And we were assisting a a missionary couple on that day who share this good news of Jesus with a neighborhood that's full of Turkish Muslims who have migrated to Berlin. You don't even know you're in Berlin. You feel like you're in Turkey when you're there. And part of them sharing their ministry with us, us, they they thought that we should see the local mosque. And so after we helped them on the streets, we walked with them into this mosque. And I walked in and I saw the most beautiful dome ceiling I've ever seen in my life. Exquisitely painted and decorated. Everything there, walls and floors, everything was made of pure marble. The center of the room was the nicest carpet I've ever seen in my entire life. Much like the temple in the Gate Beautiful. I was 30 years old at the time and I walked in. And a man walked in who looked to be exactly my age. In fact, he looked exactly like me in every single way except skin color. And I froze as I watched him over the next 10 minutes. I watched him go through the same ritual he does every single day, five times a day. I watched him repeat the same words over and over again, mimic the same motions over and over again. I watched how methodical it was, and my heart broke for him. Because what he was doing was not easy. And there was a level of dedication in his life that probably mine pales in comparison to. And there was genuine belief. But I was cut to the core with grief for him because I knew, I knew it was all for nothing. For all of his dedication and all of his commitments, at the end of the day, it was just a religion. And religion doesn't save. And religion doesn't change. And religion doesn't heal. And religion doesn't forgive. That for all of the activity and all of the work, religion leaves you just as empty as it found you. Because religion in any form whatsoever is you approaching God and he's he's impossible to catch. But in Jesus Christ, God pursued you. He came 
for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He rose again to offer you eternal life. He has sent you his son and his church and his word all in a mission to pursue you and save you. I still, still pray for that man. I pray that someone who can speak his language will tell him one day, silver and gold and religion, I don't have any of that for you. Work and effort and earning God's favor, I have none of that to give you. But this I do have, Jesus Christ on the cross dying for you. This is what I do have, the love, grace, mercy, and eternal life that is found in Jesus. So let me ask you, why are you looking for power in anything else other than Jesus? Why are you looking for answers anywhere else other than Jesus? Why are you looking for hope anywhere else other than Jesus? We have our college young adult group that meets on Sunday nights. And this last Sunday night, one of the young men came up to me and said, can we meet for lunch this week? I've got something I really need to talk to you about. I said, sure. And so we looked at our schedules and we picked Thursday to talk. I get a text at 2 a.m. overnight Tuesday night. So any way we can meet, move the meeting up. I really, really, really need to talk to you. The sad part of the story was my Wednesday was completely full. No, I, the best I can do is meet you at 11 p.m. That's the first opening I have me. So let's go ahead and wait till Thursday. I never get texts at 2 in the morning when things are good. So as we met Thursday, I was assuming that this would be a terrible experience. Something horrible would be going on in his life. And he came in with the biggest smile on his face. And he told me a story that for the last three weeks, he had been facing a major decision. It affected his finances. It affected his future. It affected his relationship with his parents. It affected everything in his life. And he had no idea which way to go. In his mind, every decision he made ended poorly. And so he was stuck and he was froze. And Tuesday night, after wrestling with this thing for four, for four weeks, he had what he called a physical and mental breakdown. That's why I got the text at 2 a.m. He just couldn't do it anymore. And finally, finally, Tuesday night, after this breakdown, he called out to Jesus. He said, you're just going to have to figure this out for me. You have to make this work somehow because I can't do it. By Thursday morning we met, Jesus had taken care of everything. And he said, I know what you're going to tell me. You're going to tell me that I should have asked him four weeks ago. And all I said was, yep. Because what he'd been doing for four weeks was begging for a few coins. He'd met with advisors. He'd met with his parents. He'd talked to people, uh, talked to people in his class he talked to his friends he kept asking humans what should i do here what do i do what do i do and finally 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 when he hit rock bottom he stopped begging for coins and he called on the name of jesus let me ask you what are the burdens that you bring in today what what has you laying at the gate of the temple begging human beings for help why don't you just give it to jesus Give your marriage to him today. Give your children to him. Give your future to him. Give your worries to him. Give your past to him. Give your anxiety to him. Give your exhaustion to him. Give your confusion and doubt to him. Give him your grief and your loss and your pain. Stop begging for coins. Call on Jesus in faith, asking him to do more than you could ever imagine. Ask him to show up in a way that leaves no doubt it is him. Ask him to work in ways that are far beyond you. 
If you're, and if you're sitting there and you've never fully trusted Christ with your life, asking him to forgive your sins and to take over your life and give you eternal life in heaven, then what are you waiting for? He pursued you. Stop relying on yourself. Stop relying on your goodness. Stop banking on your church record or being a better person than someone else you know. That's religion. That's emptiness. And we have none of that for you. But here's what we do have. We have in the name of Jesus Christ, come find life in him today. And the power of just his name a crippled beggar leapt to his feet into a whole new future. What could Jesus do for you? Stop begging for coins and call on him today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for revealing so profoundly in your word the emptiness of religion. The emptiness that always results in trying to do things by our own strength and our own power, trying to come up with our own answers. And God, if there's one here today who's done that their entire lives, who's somehow banking on appeasing you by being a good person or by going to church or trying, trying to do the right thing, God, that they would just see the emptiness of that. That doesn't change them. That doesn't save them. That doesn't forgive them. That doesn't heal them. Only you can. And pray that they would give their lives to you. But God, even those of us in here who are followers of yours, we are so apt to go revert back to being beggars. To run around and ask everyone else for help. To run around and ask everyone else for wisdom. To run around and ask everyone else for direction and never stop to think, what if we just called on Jesus to cover this? God, whatever it is that we are in chains with this morning, Whatever it is that is binding us, whatever it is that, that has left us beside the temple begging, may we surrender it to the power and glory of the name of Jesus Christ this morning. Work in such a way that you get all the glory. And we pray this in his name. Amen. We're going to sing a song.